0: Que pasa, Ni hao, bonjourno, konnichiwa. Aloha, everybody. What's up? Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Today, we've got a rising superstar in the emergent psychedelics industry, Gina Giorgio.
1: When we go to the Capitol, we specifically will bring doctors to talk to the legislators about the substances or we'll direct them to different resources. So we're referencing and using professionals as resources and then also listening to our constituents.
0: We're gonna talk about Gina's recent policy work in North Carolina, drafting a bill from scratch for psychedelic research. Yes, it can be done. You don't need a ton of degrees and accomplishments behind you to get rolling with psychedelic policy reform. Just ask Gina about that. And in fact, we will today. I'm feeling great, I'm feeling dapper. We just wrapped up a five-day mushroom festival and conference here in San Cristobal de las Casas Chiapas called Yui Fest, Yui referring to the Totsil word for Amanita, which is a genus of mushrooms with over 600 species including the fabled Amanita muscaria, the Santa Claus mushroom some might call it. And I'm getting ready to head off to Europe here shortly, so it's a lot going on, and Today in particular is a very special podcast. This is Gina's first podcast and interview. First of many, I assure you. So it's an honor to be the platform to get to break that. And I'm going to give the mic up to Gina Giorgio right now. Thanks for checking out the Micopreneur podcast. Please consider rating and reviewing this podcast wherever you're listening. Let's get the show on the road. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, what's up everybody? We've got Gina Giorgio on the podcast today. A rising superstar in the emergent psychedelic industry. What's up, Gina? How you doing today? I'm honored. I'm
1: doing amazing. Uh, This is my first interview. So to be on Micropreneur, obviously, I'm a fan of yours. So this is like a dream.
0: Well, I'm a fan of yours, too. This is mutual. And for anybody out there who may be living under a rock and unfamiliar with Gina's work, Gina's been working on the policy and advocacy side of things as well as in a journalistic and media capacity for a number of different reputable organizations in the psychedelic space, which we'll get into shortly. So one thing I want to jump into right away is this incredible policy work that you've been doing which has recently led to the introduction of house bill 727 in north carolina which would fund research on mdma to treat ptsd and also psilocybin for depression or anxiety how did you get into the arena of drug policy and legislation drafting in the first place gina
1: love it yes so i officially joined ssdp in 2020 because I wanted to work in the psychedelic industry. And so I was really inspired by seeing all the grassroots efforts that SSDPers and SSDP alum have done. So, like the psychedelic bill in Illinois, that was grassroots and SSDP related. The bill in Oregon. And then also just shocked that Texas had introduced a psychedelic research bill and also Missouri. So, I was seeing all the efforts on that side and thinking, you know, why not North Carolina? And so the original idea came to me January of last year. And so I had, yeah, seen the develops developments in other places, saw nothing was going on here. And I was like, how can we start this? And so I approached some people from SSDP and Jeremy Sharp, who's the Southeast outreach coordinator took me up on the idea. And I said, I would love to do a psychedelic research bill here. Like they're doing in Texas. I think it's a really good way to start educating the public and legislators about the whole gamut of psychedelics, because it's obviously much more vast than just the research, but that's like the tip of the iceberg we can start with. And so at that time, which is weird to say, but I was 24 and I had no policy experience or knowledge. (laughs) So even like the most basic political terms I didn't know of, I'd have to like research this as we go which is, it's funny to say. And so we started at a complete grassroots level, me and Jeremy just out cold outreach to anyone we could find in North Carolina that worked in psychedelics. So that was like people at Duke University, Chapel Hill, the Pearl Psychedelic Institute in Waynesville, North Carolina, which is a MAPS expanded access study site, CAHOBA, a lot of practitioners are actually in North Carolina. So it started with a year of last year of coalition building going to Raleigh to go into legislators offices and talk about psychedelic research which is always interesting to do because a lot of people they've never heard about it so you go in and they're like I don't even know what that means and that's just like the first conversation so like you can't really get too deep into the like nuances of it if people have never heard of psychedelics for therapy and so it really reached a critical point where December of 2020 representative John Autry of Mecklenburg County reached out to Jeremy and I, and he said, I've been hearing more about psychedelic therapy. I'm interested in introducing this bill. I've heard you guys are already working on this behind the scenes. And so I was like, so excited. Cause we've put so much time into this, just the two of us, like we don't get paid to do this. Like this is like, I'm just so passionate about expanding access to psychedelics and talking about them to people. And so John Autry was interested in introducing the bill because a constituent of his reached out to him and he said he'd been doing a lot of ketamine therapy for his complex PTSD. And he was like, you know, you should just look into this, which he did. That led him to different people, thus me and Jeremy. And then from there, you know, we officially kind of started our coalition. Our coalition to be clear, it's actually not students. It's like, established researchers, therapists, health coaches, policy professionals. It just so happens that like the two people who run it are me and Jeremy and we're young people. (laughs) Yeah. And so from there, we're almost there. The bill got introduced March of this year, passed through the health house committee in May and now it's being considered in appropriations.
0: Yeah, that's quite a comprehensive framework that you engaged and to do so successfully on your first attempt. Hats off to you. Kudos. So I grew up in San Diego and in San Francisco, and psychedelics were fairly interwoven into the social fabric of young adult life there, especially in the creative class. People who were playing in bands, painters, musicians, surfers, all of that. There was still a lot of misinformation floating around. There still is. There wasn't quite this therapeutic research push. It was more a recreational activity. And there were plenty of folks I knew, myself included, who were leveraging them for creative capacities and bringing them into our lives in a meaningful capacity. But this idea of research and therapy and medicalization was quite foreign to a lot of us. So I'm curious, what was the culture like around psychedelics in North Carolina, right? I would imagine it's quite a bit different. What is the public perception? towards psychedelics still like in North Carolina?
1: That question is so important because it's still so relevant. I think it goes both ways. So there's this like so established psychedelic scene, especially in Asheville, North Carolina. So, you know, decades, they've been doing their own sort of ceremonies and things. They have like their own culture there. And then you have little pockets in North Carolina where it's still a hidden underground sort of practice and thing. But North Carolina is more so in a lot of places, rural, conservative. There's a lot of like abstinence only drug education. So it can really go either way when I tell people what it is that I do. So some people are curious. They're like, what does that actually mean? Some people are like, oh, my God, don't talk to me about psychedelics. I was born in the 60s. I've had multiple people say that to me. so there's there's a lot of fear, so there's fear, there's curiosity, and then there's the people that are like, yeah, I did, I've not been doing psychedelics for decades um, it just to me wasn't a public conversation, and that was what I wanted. so I'm one of those people who is a psychedelic fanatic, so like I'm one of those people that you talk about like on your instagram so <laughs> so like i like if I look up like psychedelics in North Carolina, which I did in the beginning, there's nothing there's just like psychedelic abuse treatment centers like this person got arrested because they were growing psychedelics like things like that like no one was talking about it or at least that i could find so it was like you know let's start having the conversation but i will say so you grew up in california i actually grew up in connecticut so it was even very different in Connecticut. Like there was no psychedelic culture. I didn't grow up around that sort of thing. So in my experience, I've been living in North Carolina for seven years, but like my roots are in Connecticut, which to me was a very like preppy. We I think of it as kind of like you're growing up in like a country club sort of setting. So yeah, psychedelics weren't talked about in my upbringing in Connecticut and not really here. So it was something that I kind of first learned about as always the internet
0: sure and then when you enrolled as a student at wake forest it's my understanding that's when you really in earnest started to explore the possibility of pursuing a career in psychedelics you know a lot of the research with johns hopkins and various other institutions maps who you mentioned earlier started to pick up there was some more publicity around it and lo and behold here you are right in the you know at the vanguard of this emergent psychedelic industry as some refer to it so I'm curious, going back to Wake Forest, when you first started to explore the potential of a career in psychedelics, you mentioned that you would Google and there's not much going on, but at some point you connected with a handful of organizations that you started collaborating with, volunteering with, and, and eventually working with. Who are some of those organizations that shaped your approach to the psychedelic ecosystem when you decided to do it as a career?
1: I love this question. I'm actually going to go a little further back than Wake Forest, but it does connect because I started at Wake Forest last year, but I would say my first like glimpse into psychedelics was 2018. So backstory a little, I feel like the context is important. So as a young person, I I was interested in the mental health space in general, and I wanted to be a therapist. So I go into college. I was a psychology major as a lot of us are. And so in class, we learn about all the different types of therapy and like pharmaceutical drugs. And that, that was it. That was like all I knew. And so 2018, I was 21 at the time and I was watching Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. People were talking about their psychedelic experiences. And I was like, I've never heard about this. Like I always learned like psychedelics will like kill you. You'll go crazy. But people were talking about on this show, like their transformative experiences with psychedelics. And I was like, that's fascinating. Like. I think that's the future of therapy you know little did i know so like (laughs) there was a bit less information also even in 2018 but that was watching that show sparked me wanting to work in psychedelics so that was where it all began so from there it went into like i finished my undergraduate degree in psychology i ultimately tried psychedelics the year after in 2019 so i was My last semester of college, I was terrified, but I actually tried them and I was like, oh, they're like, they're not gonna kill me. Like (laughs) it kind of solidified like my interest to work in the space. I'm a little overly ambitious. So I prefer the term like overly ambitious over like try hard. So I'm overly ambitious. And I was like, I will do whatever it takes. Like I wanna work in psychedelics and I wanna like teach other people about them and expand access. So that led me onto this like journey into joining SSDP, joining their psychedelic career mentorship pipeline. So just kind of networking because I was still living in North Carolina. I didn't know anyone working in psychedelics. I didn't know anyone who wanted to work in psychedelics. I mean, it's, it's, as you said, it's different on the East coast than the West coast, but here it was like unheard of at the time. So I was like, I'll do like whatever I can. I joined, as I said, SSDP psychedelic career mentorship pipeline. So they match up young people with those with established psychedelic careers. So I was matched up with someone who worked professionally in psychedelic communications, which I just think is fascinating, even though it was very niche for the time. In SSDP, I was seeing what Psychedelic Spotlight was doing. And I was like, I think that's awesome. There's other psychedelic news and media companies, but I loved the sort of like Pop culture approach that Psychedelic Spotlight was taking, because I think that that's good for kind of like pulling people in that normally might not be interested in psychedelics. So I cold outreached to someone on LinkedIn, as you know, Swati. I reached out to Swati and I was like, I want to work for you guys. (laughs) How can I do that? What do you need? I was working part time then on SSDP's Psychedelic Pipeline. I started doing social media for psychedelic spotlight and then i got the job at Nissen Co. pr which is a cannabis and psychedelic pr firm but i got hired on their cannabis policy and advocacy side so it sort of all happened around the same time but i was so excited about all of the opportunities i still do them now but i was like this is so cool like how can i like drop one of them <laughs>
0: No kidding. Yeah, I mean back in my college day, back in my day, we didn't have legal psychedelic <laughs> we had to walk up hill in the snow both ways to buy our drugs. Now it was like the creative industries were, I think, the psychedelic opportunities. Like if you had a cathartic psychedelic experience, most people went and started a band or started trying to become a film directors, you know, and so I think that industry is alight with lots of psychedelic opportunities still. But it's really cool to see this framework emerging where there's so many different paths you can take as you know from your work with the pipeline right so you have actually just did a podcast more focused on fungi but with psychedelics there's just so many different routes you can take now that were just not available you know and there's something really inspiring about being at the vanguard kind of being at the forefront of this space as it takes shape as all these new companies start to launch and the policy gets drafted and all of a sudden there's psychedelic law firms, you know, and things like, it's, it's fascinating to track. And, and I'm inspired to have fresh young perspectives like yourself, you know, who come in and and were able to dedicate yourself and your talents and skills pretty early on instead of having to wait to your mid thirties before you found your calling. I always like to joke now, like I'm doing stand up gigs and psychedelic comedy and the satire and like This is the same shit that I was doing back when I was in high school and college. There was just no infrastructure or real audience for it. So I'm like, I felt like I was way qualified back in like 2012, but I was just kind of a goofball outcast in the eyes of society. And it feels really good now to be able to show up to these events and have some degree of legitimacy. So, okay, now let's talk about... Opportunities for growth in the psychedelic space. I think a lot of people would acknowledge there's quite a few challenges and growing pains. You've referenced expanded access several times to being part of your guiding ethos that drives you. But in all the work that you've done, what are some areas of, of improvement that you've noticed where maybe the, the industry or the space is going through some growing pains that through diligent application of pressure and, and, and dedication and hopefully we can address and to create maybe a more equitable, a more inclusive, expanded access. So what are some of those bottlenecks or some of those challenges that you've identified?
1: That's also a great question. I, To me, the biggest issue, and I think a lot of people would agree, is how costly psychedelic therapy actually is in its most controlled form. So I think understandably so, so many of us were excited about it. They're like psychedelic therapy is legitimate now. Like we've been wanting it to be recognized as a real treatment, but, oh, it's just as expensive as like other types of healthcare. So I saw there was such a strong push towards the medicalization of psychedelics, but I think which that is like a really good option for a lot of people if they don't feel comfortable doing it in a less formal setting but to me I see the bottleneck issue is needing to shift away from the medicalization and then going to decrim and I'm not a practitioner but as I talk to a lot of practitioners that's what they want that's what supports them and protects them and that's what gives their patients like Equitable and affordable access. And that's also like I'm shifting some of my efforts away from medicalization and more towards DCRAM just to be able to support all the existing practitioners and infrastructure that's been there for, you know, predates me by decades. You know, I'm just like coming in within the past few years. But Once again, I love the idea of psychedelic therapy, but it's not affordable for most people. And we don't exactly know how insurance will cover parts of it yet. So that, I mean, as we all know, that's like, that's the big issue right now.
0: That's a big one. I'm a big proponent of education before regulation. I feel like these substances are out. Pandora's box is open. And as a former high school teacher, I had to sit idly by because of the red tape and bureaucracy involved while high school students were learning about drugs on their own and from TikTok. And it's something that I hope to contribute more to in the future. And I have actually with Rana Hashimi, who I believe you're on a panel with, is someone I've talked to extensively about this, right? She runs alternative pilot models of drug education in Oakland Public Schools. So talking about an inner city environment where not just psychedelics, but drug use, right? Just people using substances to alter their consciousness. But a lot of times without a very good frame of reference or educational framework to support that. And it's a shame that in the push towards legalization and all this, that so many people are left behind who are now accessing dubious quality substances, misinformation. So that's something I've really honed in on is about the virality of misinformation, especially when you introduce things like social media and, you know, these self-appointed life coaches, which clearly there are some people who do great work, but I think there's, we can all agree there's plenty of unscrupulous actors who are invited in when there's no regulation. And I think a lot of people are just sick of the glacial pace that regulation takes as, you know, when you you say psychedelic therapy or psychedelics can show this promise for this treatment and this and this and this but then you don't actually make it affordable or accessible. Well, that invites people to go out and explore it on their own. And in many cases who might not even have a mental health issue, who just want to take a substance. And we are basically completely absent of any kind of meaningful drug education system at large right now. So that's something I have devoted some time to and hope to more in the future. And where I was going with that, I guess, is who are some of the other organizations that you're currently working with who are inspiring you. I asked you about you know who were seminal influences on you, but there are so many of these upstart organizations now, even around psychedelic science. It feels like another half dozen or a dozen you know different psychedelic organizations came to fruition. Who are some of the people and organizations that are currently inspiring you right now?
1: I will answer that. But I wanna go back to one thing that you said about drug education and Rana. So, you know, who's really been doing the work is Rana, Vilmarie, Stephanie, and Michaela with drug education. It's funny to say this, but they're talking about like talking to teenagers and adolescents about psychedelics. It's like, to us, we you know, I feel like we've swept a lot of conversations under the rug for a long time. But if you start, at an early age, and you talk to people about drug use and different substances objectively, I mean, that in itself can change a lot more than retroactively trying to change policies and regulations. You know, that's like the core of it all is that a lot of us were misinformed at a young age and then had to reteach ourselves about drugs later on in life. So I think that that's a really good point. And they've both created different programs like Just Say No drug education for college students through SSDP and Safety First, which is drug education, I believe, for high schoolers. And that was created through DPA. It's a great point. I mean, it's all always about educating. There's always someone to, like, talk more about this with. People who are inspiring me right now. Oh, my God. I feel like I said Vilmarie. Vilmarie always inspires me. And I feel like I owe Vilmarie, like, so much because she – as you, I think, I believe you know Marie, but Marie is a therapist. She owns a nonprofit, like healing organization in Illinois. She helped start the introduction of their psychedelic bill in Illinois. She created Just Say No drug education through SSDP. She created SSDP's psychedelic pipeline. I'm sure she does so much more than I even said. But so, like, I look up to her a lot, and she was one of the people that I looked up to when I wanted to introduce a bill here, because, so she was the director of the Psychedelic Pipeline, and I was her intern a couple years ago. And so, like, we would have regular meetings, and she would tell me about what she was doing in Illinois, and I was, like, I didn't even know, like, that regular citizens could introduce bills. (laughs) I was like, is that possible? Like, I've never known anyone to do that. So I feel like she opened up so much to me. I think in the psychedelic industry, we like to keep it really kosher. So I'm currently kind of like looking to the people who I feel like make like some noise. So that's why I enjoy what you do because you like shine a light on like what's going on. But it's through satire. So it's a little more palatable. But it like, I feel like it gives us a chance to like reflect on maybe some of like the flaws of like our organizations and systems and like the things we're trying to push it's like I feel like this is a theme obviously of what you post but like the sheer irony of us putting systems around like naturally occurring drugs is like it's just funny it's like as humans it's like we're trying to control something that just has been existing on its own for centuries.
0: Thank you. I appreciate the acknowledgement there. (laughs) It was totally accidental that I started doing all this satire. I've talked about it a few times on the podcast, but I wanted to segue into the next bit about part of your bill, which is about psilocybin for depression and anxiety. Absolutely. So this bill, House Bill 727, like the MDMA for PTSD especially with the veteran cause and with MDMA being something that you can it's essentially laboratory controlled and patentable is my understanding it's not a natural substance but psilocybin is a natural substance so of course there's all these analogs that have come out that various biotech firms the Christian Engermeyers of the world and and various other people at Thai life sciences compass pathways etc That's what they're banking on, as far as I understand, to have a monopoly, which you can only have if you have patents, which you can only have if it's a non-natural substance or an analog or derivative. So a lot of the studies being done around psilocybin are with a yeast-derived source. I'm just curious, when you are having these conversations uh, in the legislative process, are you finding yourself having to go into the nuances? And is that a challenge? Because, you know, for the average citizen, it might be a challenge, but for lawmakers... I can imagine when you approach them and you start getting into the nuances of things around language, has that come up at all for you? And you're engaging them that you have to kind of fundamentally explain and and unpack this much broader worldview other than just saying, like, we're going to give this medicine for this purpose.
1: That is, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So I find, yeah, with a lot of people, you have to go Put the policy aside and just fundamentally explain like certain substances like psilocybin and their origin and then so typically we'll go into like what it is and that it's naturally occurring it's in mushrooms and then we'll sort of say like people love you know johns hopkins is researching this imperial college london yale so sort of getting into like explaining the whole landscape because they, they don't know, which I understand. Like, they also have different topics to work on. So we'll talk about, like, the research landscape, the political landscape, talk about Texas, Missouri, Florida introduced the bill. I find I typically like to ha- reference certain psychedelic researchers in North Carolina. So to me, I think it's better for that nuanced information to come from them. So we've had researchers consult on the bill itself. So I had more of like the rough framework, but I didn't like consult on all the nuances of it. And then when we go to the Capitol, we specifically will bring like doctors to talk to the legislators about the substances or we'll direct them to different resources. But yeah, so also how I think how we landed on the different, substances and their treatments, so obviously MDMA for PTSD, but then psilocybin for depression and anxiety, also looking at certain pain measures. So the, the different types of people that could qualify would be frontline healthcare workers, first responders, veterans, and then victims of domestic abuse. And so some of it was also framed around constituents in North Carolina specifically. That was how we landed on some of it. And then also learning about psilocybin for cluster headaches, because someone who's very involved in our coalition has cluster headaches um, and psilocybin has been like pretty much his only reprieve from that. So we're, you know, referencing and using professionals as resources and then also listening to our constituents about what would help them.
0: Awesome. That's such a good approach to take, you know, leave the expertise to the experts and, create the pipeline for them to be the ones informing and I suppose a lot of times you have to wear a lot of hats when you're in the position you're in and you're drafting the bill and especially when this landscape or, in, or industry is sort of in its infancy at the onset there weren't a lot of like specialized roles I feel like like if you joined an organization you would have to do a lot of different things which I'm sure you can attest to so one thing that I've been fascinated with is this idea of a psychedelic career pipeline and for example psychedelic alpha has a psychedelic jobs page which to me is kind of an oxymoron but so be it but like this if you were to advise someone Who was 18 years old right now going into college and you know there are various universities launching psychedelic studies programs and research centers and University of Exeter just launched some kind of post-grad course in psychedelics it feels like they're being rolled out and will continue to be rolled out given the immense popularity, the demand, the interest and all of the success stories that are coming out from people about psychedelics being transformational for them. So if you were to advise someone let's call it young Gina, 18, super sharp, good head on your shoulders. You know, the world is your oyster and you decide that psychedelics are really attractive as a career option. Where would somebody go, you know, where where would somebody who is 18 years old who has no connection to the psychedelic community go to begin a meaningful entree into the emergent psychedelic industry?
1: I get that question often. So a lot of young people do reach out to me and they're like, I'm interested in psychedelics. Like, how can I get involved? How can I get a job? So I think it is is—it is funny that there are job boards, although they're super useful because there are so many young people that feel so called to this space. So as funny as it is, it's like, I feel like it is, is—it's a good it's a good resource. But so typically I start in a few different places, which are, you know, advising people to join psychedelic groups where they live um, and then also attend conferences. So I think like the first step is just meeting people because it seems daunting otherwise. It's like a lot of people just don't know what their options are. And that's like the first place that I see. So people don't know if they want to work in research or therapy or policy or comms. So just showing them what their options are, so you can go to conferences, learn about that, talk to people and hear what their experience is, and then I'll sometimes I'll direct people to free online courses, so psychedelic support, psychedelics today, there's a lot of free resources of people just talking about the psychedelic industry at large, what their jobs are, and how they segued in, because I think that's what confuses a lot of people is they're thinking, well, these drugs are illegal, but there's people who have jobs in the psychedelic space. I don't understand how I'm supposed to do that. So aside from that, and then I do direct them to job boards. So like psychedelic grad has a job board, psychedelic alpha, and I like psychedelic alpha also for their legalization decrim tracker. It's good to know what's going on where you live. I would say aside from those things, my number one piece of advice is to join an online psychedelic community if you don't have one where you live so like I didn't at first so I joined psychedelic grad I joined ssdp just talk to other people I think the support is so helpful like you don't have to do the whole thing alone just get to, yeah get to know other people get to know the landscape go through it together so that's what I do now with um I direct ssdp psychedelic pipeline so I kind of like give people the information and resources that I wish I had when I was younger. So typically what that looks like is we have, you know, a Slack group and an email chain. So I'll email them different opportunities that I see. So whether that's events, courses, internships, jobs, scholarships to go to conferences, things like that. So just like the regular communication and keeping them in the loop. And then also primarily I host events. So as a program, we do networking events virtually so that uh, mentees can get to know the mentors in the program. Because how it's set up is that we have a lot of young SSD peers and they'll get matched up to whichever mentor. Some mentors have multiple mentees, but I find it's also more useful to meet as like a whole group. So people will like exchange information, talk about what they're interested in and learn about their options so aside from networking we had um an event with bill marie and she hosted an event about how to become a therapist and how to become a psychedelic therapist because they're two very different things so there's a lot of options for how to become a licensed mental health professional and then on top of that there's all sorts of psychedelic training programs as well so it's kind of it's overwhelming like I feel like it's easier when you're established and you've seen the landscape develop, but when you're young and you're walking right into it, it's it's hard to grasp.
0: Couldn't agree more. I felt so overwhelmed at my first conference. I felt so overwhelmed at South by Southwest. And there's this sense of everybody else knows what's going on and I'm totally lost. And And, and I guess a big part of that is I learned this you know through experience that you have to connect with people and build relationships in order to know what's going on and where you fit in. I saw a shirt when I was over in Japan recently they a lot of people wear these really cool shirts that have like these uplifting English messages that are kind of cryptic and one of my favorite ones was somebody just walked by me with a shirt that said connection is how we make sense of our experience And I was like, whoa, that's so meta. Like, I just really need it. Like, I'm so glad it wasn't just like a Tommy Hilfiger shirt. You know, I had had this call to action. And I found tremendous, tremendous benefit from the conference circuit by connecting with people and seeing there are some people that, you know, maybe I don't want to build towards something with them, but there are plenty of other folks that you're going to fit in with. And you're going to go, oh, I really like what this organization is doing. I like where they stand. I like these people. And I think that's the real value as far as I'm concerned to a lot of the conferences. Connecting with the people that you resonate with and they, you, someone usually has a plan and it's usually not me. And I found, like, <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you how overwhelmed I was by the first day of South by Southwest. Like it was just this monstrosity of a conference. And then literally as soon as I connected with one of my friends there, he had everything dialed in and I got sort of attached to that group. And it just felt like home. And I think like Burning Man would probably be the same thing. I've never been, but Burning Man has what 70, 80,000 people. There's a million things happening. No one's able to tackle that whole thing. Like you have to find the group, find the others connect with them and then build together. And I think that's probably an analogy for navigating the space in general. Like if you want to start a company, that's one of the things I'm navigating right now that I've heard from a lot of people I respect is about scaling or even even not scaling, just delegating and building a team that all feels valued and that all has different qualities that they bring to the table. And that's really arguably the most, um, the quickest route towards meaningful and lasting success is to have a team that you share it with and people and SSDP seems to be pretty on point with all of that. So it's something I've got, I'm lawyered up and I've got a design professional, you know, I have my skeleton crew and I'll always looking to add a few people. So that's something, you know, when the time comes might, might invite a few more people into the fold, but I am getting Uh, long winded here. So let's wrap this up with one more very important question. And that is what's coming next over the next six months for you, Gina?
1: Yes. So of course, there's a lot, but I will start as this is a mushroom podcast, we can talk about smush. So I'm working on a mushroom startup called smush. And so really, the idea was that I love plants, and I love mushrooms. And there have been so many products designed to grow mushrooms for consumption, but I haven't seen a product designed to grow mushrooms just as decor. So that's how the idea for Smush was born. And so we're working on developing a product to create terrariums so you can grow different types of mushrooms just for decorative purposes. So that's one of my biggest projects right now. And it ties into what you were saying, which is that, you know, I'm young, I'm 26, and I'm building a team. I, you know, I'm going step by step, but it's like we're building a team with something that hasn't quite been done before. People don't know much about like ornamental house mushroom growing. So next, working on product development for Smush, continuing to co-run the North Carolina Psychedelic Policy Coalition fingers crossed House Bill 727 will get passed this year. In the sort of background, there's a lot of like organization going on in North Carolina and the Southeast part of that. So we're looking now to start coalition building in Georgia and South Carolina to do a similar sort of thing to get some type of psychedelic bill, whether that's research or not. So the same like core team that we built in North Carolina, we're expanding to South Carolina and Georgia, because some of us actually live in those places anyway. So we're not like invading. And then we're also probably going to push for some types of decrim citywide in North Carolina. So keep an eye out for that.
0: Dope. Okay. When can I get my hands on some smush products? I've seen some prototypes. I know you did a Wake Forest demo day recently. What's the timeline to launch for all that?
1: Goal timeline to launch by end of this year. So hopefully October or November, I'm working with a product development, manufacturing and marketing company in Charlotte, North Carolina. So it's about an hour and a half from where I live. It's just a process. I want it to come out, you know, as soon as I can, but like I want the price like as down as I can because I want it to be accessible and I want it to be a mainstream product that anyone can have in their house. Goal, end of this year, but you'll get one, we'll see.
0: (laughs) I'm keeping my eyes peeled and I'm gonna do a ton of promo for it when it comes out. So Gina, Giorgio, thank you so much for joining us on the Micropreneur podcast. It's an honor to have hosted your first interview podcast. This is really, really an honor for me I see the way you move through this space and I hope that there's many more like you to come and that your inspiration continues to inspire others the way it has inspired me. So thank you for all your work on the policy side and also inspiring the next generation of psychedelic professionals.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for giving me the platform to talk about my work.
0: No doubt, peace. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.